0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, And this is season two of The Competitive Edge. What you need to know about competition law from Australia and around the world. Except for Russia. I think given the current situation, we might not share any competition law news from Russia today. Have we ever
1: shared any competition law news from Russia, Matt?
0: Well, we like to be ahead of the
1: game. Well, that we are, because today we have The Big Interview. We bring you an exclusive one-on-one with incoming A3C chair and recent former GNT partner, Gina Cascotley. From her family kitchen table to her formative educational years to that all-important question of who she supports in the Premier League. We bring you a unique and up-close look at the woman who more than anyone will shape our competition law landscape in the years to come. She'll be looking back on her experiences as a practitioner, as a woman in the law, and where we're seeing cultural change.
2: There is still need all the time to work hard on making these interactions be respectful, inclusive, equal, draw on people to the best of their ability. To be aware of that and to take account of it needs real empathy and understanding and changing the way you work.
1: We'll hear more about that
0: in just a minute. But first, Matt, tell us what's been happening around the grounds. Well, quite a lot has happened since season one. The big news in cartel enforcement was the collapse of the criminal case against ANZ and its underwriters, which kind of fell apart in the way that a Hemingway character goes bankrupt. Gradually and then suddenly. In this case, when the Commonwealth prosecutors decided they no longer had a reasonable prospect of conviction. Well,
1: Kate Morgan SC told us on this pod last year that the cartel provisions might just be too complex to apply in a criminal court.
0: Yeah, and that may well have been part of it. The ACCC will be doing an internal review and also talking to the CDPP to work out what went wrong. Mm. What else is going on? Well, the ACCC has released an issues paper for the fifth installment of its digital platform services inquiry, and it's a pretty big one this time. It uh, sort of pulls together quite a few of the issues that the ACCC has found so far in its review, and it asks whether there really ought to be specific ex ante rules for some of these large digital platforms and what those rules might look like they've upped the ex ante. They really have. And they've kept upping it in their enforcement and compliance priorities for the coming year, which they released this month as they do around this time every year. This year's a bit different though, isn't it? Yeah, the timing is pretty unique, but the priorities themselves are less so. They have the usual ongoing concerns with consumer and fair trading issues, with a focus this year on environmental claims, high value purchases like cars and caravans. And of course, the COVID 19 pandemic. Mm, I was hoping that wouldn't still be a priority for 22, 23. Yeah, weren't we all? Then there are competition and consumer issues in essential services, in digital platforms, supply chains, and also financial services with a particular focus on payments. So things like Apple Pay, which has been an issue kicking around for a while now, mm-hmm. as well as exclusive arrangements by businesses with market power, such as the action against Peter's Ice Cream that the ACCC has underway at the moment. Is that why I can't get an icy bowl for 20 cents anymore? That's no, it's terrible, isn't it? Finally, Rod Sims did mention the changes that he's proposed for merger reform and also the new prohibition against unfair practices he's been arguing for. And he said that those debates remained a priority for the ACCC in 2022-23, but ultimately it was a question for the government, which is ultimately true. But it'll also be a question for the new chair of the ACCC, won't it? That's right. And of course, the biggest news from the break has to be that, as you mentioned, Rod Sims is stepping down after 11 years and the new chair of the A3C will be today's guest, Gina Kaskotlieb, who was until recently a partner in the G&T Competition and Regulation Group. Gina started this group more or less from scratch
1: over 25 years ago, and she's really been an inspiration for generations of competition lawyers
0: since then. And I'm not just saying that because we're hoping for an invite to her very nice barbecue, Matt. I've heard it's very nice. She actually rescued me from a graduate rotation I really wasn't enjoying back in the day and asked me if I'd ever thought about competition law, which I had to say I hadn't because I I had no idea what it was. And if you told me back then that I'd end up doing at least two seasons of a podcast all about it, I would have said, "Mm, what's a podcast?
1: (laughs) And and what is a podcast?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We still don't know.
1: With Liza Carver also joining this month and Stephen Ridgeway coming on board with the ACCC back in 2019, there's a fair bit of private practice legal experience now at the top of the commission.
0: Is that going to change things, do you think? I think it probably will. I mean, it hasn't been that common historically for private practice lawyers to go straight to the ACCC, either as chairs or commissioners. Hmm. There have been quite long stretches where the commissioners have had a lot of economic and public policy experience, but not as much recent private legal experience. And I think critically, the new commission will have really a lot of experience in competition litigation from a business point of view, and they'll have to be hoping that that will help the ACCC win a few more of these really difficult cases in court over the next few years, which will flow into the the CDPP as well in criminal matters. What about the amendments to the law that the ACCC's been arguing for? Yeah, there's been a bit of commentary that lawyers may be more likely to work within the law rather than trying to change it. You reckon? And they'll definitely be more aware than most people of the costs and the uncertainty that changes to the law can have for business. But then they also don't like laws that are too complex or confusingly drafted. And we do have a few of those in the books at the moment. Well, those cartel
1: provisions might be feeling a bit nervous then. It'll be very interesting to see what happens to that under the new chair. Although I have to add that even though our longest-serving A Triple C chair has just stepped down after almost 11 years, the legendary Japanese striker Kazu, who actually played for Sydney FC some years ago, has just signed with a new team for his
0: 36th year playing professional football. It's great to say, isn't it? Kazu will be loaned to the Suzuka point getters, which I just reckon is the best name for a sports team or any team, really. Or lawyers, even. You'd rather get the point than miss it. <laughs> and speaking of lawyers who get the point, it must be time for our big interview. Indeed. Well, Gina cascot has already had a remarkable career by any measure.
1: In fact, anyone under 35 probably can't remember a time when Gina wasn't the go to competition lawyer for big Bet the Farm deals. So it was just fascinating to talk to her about some of her experiences and her wisdom.
0: Yeah. At the time of recording, Gina was enjoying a short interval between leaving the firm and embarking on her next adventure as chair of the ACCC. Yeah,
1: but that didn't stop this podcast fearlessly interrupting her to bring you this extended interview.
0: Let's take a listen.
1: Tina, thanks so much for joining us on The Competitive Edge. You've operated at the pinnacle of this profession for so long that your name is really synonymous with leadership and excellence. How did you get into competition law and why?
2: After a whole lifetime of thinking I was going to become a surgeon like my father and taking photos at his procedures, which he would then use for training as slides, because at that point they weren't digital images, I would attend his surgery and take photos of his procedures.
1: Ooh, that sounds a little gruesome.
2: Yes. So I grew up in a family where we would see slides projected at dinner time and wasn't me, but another one of my siblings would call out more blood. So it was a different environment. Um, <laughs> were, were you vegetarians? could I ask? <laughs> we should have been. <laughs> um, at the end of high school, for a mixture of reasons, I'd loved debating and realised that I just got great fun out of argument and arguing.
1: It was easier to slice up an argument than it was to actually do carpentry on someone's bones. It
2: it was. And coming out of that period at the end of the 70s, I thought one does not understand this world or politics if you don't understand economics. So that led me to do economics and law in university. And at the end of doing my honours year, where I also worked as a research assistant in economics, I nearly didn't finish the law because I felt... So convinced of the importance of economics. So at the end of that process, I was looking for jobs that would combine economics and law, which was how I chanced upon competition law at that stage at Sydney University. They didn't teach competition law, so I had not studied competition law. What I knew was I needed to develop my career in this intersection of economics and law. And so that was the critical reason. But also then I did an associateship with Justice McHugh when he was on the Court of Appeal, and he knew I wanted to study overseas. And I'd wanted to study overseas to advance my learning, but also because my father had done his professional qualifications as a surgeon, because at that stage you could not become. A qualified orthopedic surgeon in Australia. So he had been a ship's doctor, not on a cruise ship, but on a cargo ship that sailed through the Suez Canal and the Australians all played cricket on the deck of the ship going through the Suez Canal. Oh, wow. So he went and qualified as an orthopedic surgeon in the UK. He worked in mining towns later on, years later, he took me and showed me the towns he worked in. He worked in Oswestry with people who were victims of mining accidents, When he still had deep connections with the community. So for him, it had just opened the world to him, and so I wanted to study overseas for that reason. And Justice McHugh said to me, don't go to England, it's much more interesting, go to the US. So I went to UC Berkeley and there I did two things which carried forward through my whole career. I did antitrust and Californian unfair competition law. And I also studied financial systems and services at Sydney Uni. We had studied in terms of financial instruments, 19th century and 18th century bills of exchange. Was that useful? No more. (laughs) I mean, contractually and otherwise and other equitable principles, there's some use, but basically a year and a half later at UC Berkeley, we studied the operating constituent documents of Visa and MasterCard. We studied the SWIFT payment system, which of course, now the Russian banks are being denied participation in. So- We were suddenly in the operation of global finance and how payments were happening. And it it was 1986. And I have gone on to do antitrust and payment systems now on the payment system board. But in essence, it also shows how it can be serendipitous to have these opportunities because it was Justice McHugh's sense that more interesting thinking was happening in the United States. And it was critical. It, It undoubtedly was quite significantly more connected with global commerce and just the way business and policy was changing. And and it was a very exciting environment. The student population sort of split pretty equally into people who were going into public advocacy and civil rights work and people who were sure they were going to Wall Street and going to be in big corporate firms. So it was fascinating to watch. It, it, It was just an incredibly stimulating academic environment.
1: Which group did you hang out with? Who did you go drinking with at, at <laughs> Berkeley, the Wall Street gang or the civil rights activists?
2: Well, it was, there was a very small master's group and they were all foreign students and I learnt a lot of interesting things from them. So much of it gravitated to that, though I did meet a range of the American students as well, more probably in the civil rights sort of side, public advocacy side but it was a very dynamic environment. International political people would come to speak in the amphitheatre there, so Corazon Aquino came to speak. I have marvellous memories of that time.
1: Sounds wonderful. Mm. So, do, did you go on any demonstrations with your civil rights friends? Did, do, do you have... Any arrests or convictions that we should know about?
2: <laughs> Sorry, Boya. <laughs> no. Sorry, no, we don't
1: talk about them. Um, but
2: one other interesting aspect about that experience, so I had a Fulbright Fellowship at that stage that gave prestige but didn't give much money and the money support that I had came from Sydney Uni, Travelling Scholarship, and from the American Association of University Women The American Association of University Women put money together to give fellowships to foreign women and local women. And part of the return for that was that you went to meet with groups of them across the local area. So, six times in the sort of 10 months I was there, I went to meetings with them, often in their homes, and groups of them would get together. And that was fabulous. It was just a women to women initiative. And so, critically, from a public interest point of view, what was very important for me in that time was in that time there was an election in California and Californian judges of the Californian Supreme Court are elected. At that time, the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court was Rosebird. And there was a movement against Rosebird, Justice Grindon, and I don't recall a third of them. Funded by the National Rifle Association and by, in essence, it appeared owners of offshore drilling rigs because they considered that the judgments of the court had not been sufficiently focused on victims' rights and were too concerned about environmental conditions. So, as someone for whom judges are appointed in Australia Mm. and and protected and protected and have have a term uh, independent Mm. of the nature of their decisions. I watched and I would sit with other students. I have visions of it sort of sitting in halls because I I didn't have a television watching. So there would be debates and there would be media questions to Rosebird, given something like two minutes to answer a question to justify a decision. Those three judges were voted out. So the whole process was totally a shock to me and I thought absolutely contrary to the capacity of the courts and justice to function properly as a branch of government and able to apply to deliver justice as they saw fit on, on the merits and on the evidence and also to function as a check and balance.
1: We see America as the leader of the free world, et cetera, but some of the processes are just intuitively problematic, like that one.
2: Yeah. I think it can differ state by state, whether they're popularly elected or not, because there's so much difference in that federal system. It was one of the aspects that I was studying. I, I did a thesis comparing aspects of the federal system of Australia and the US. It's called Crafting Bright Lines, because there weren't bright lines. So it does differ, but combined with non-compulsory voting, of course, we're almost a, a sole outlier. So you can have a situation where, as we all see in the elections, but to see that uh, that you can have a, a funded movement or, or group bring out enough people to vote, which may still be not a majority of people, and vote out your Supreme Court.
1: Indeed. A, a very much a, a rallied interest group is enough to put an end to a judicial career. Correct. In that, in that circumstance. You talked about your scholarship arrangements to the US. Let's go back a little bit further and tell us about your family and your childhood and your time at school.
2: My dad was an orthopedic surgeon. It was really a vocation. He would see his patients twice every day, including on the weekends. He was a strong supporter of publicly funded health And at that time, in part contributed to by his brother, Moscas, who was at the end of his time in the cabinet health minister and one of the architects of what was then called Medibank and became named Medicare before the split between the insurance aspects. There's another thing the Americans don't have. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. So, and my father was a strong supporter of that, which was not necessarily popular amongst many of his colleagues. We all grew up with a strong sense of that contribution. His father had been a country GP in the sort of weak belt of Western Australia and then in Carcourt in New South Wales. So there had been a strong sense of the contribution to community through medicine. And my mother was... Uh, professor in social policy and social work, uh, and then the Dean of Arts at Sydney Uni. Well, let's not put too fine a point on it. Your mother was and is a feminist icon in Australia. Yeah, my my mother's fantastic and has worked not only in an academic sense, but in crafting many programs, recognising and protective of women and children and the disadvantages that many face. She Contributed to the policies supporting indexation of aged pension. She has worked hard and contributed and continues to do so in multiple community ways. And so our parents were always working. Uh, My mother would work at the dining room, table writing. People would be working morning, day, night, and that was just what you expected. And with both of the parents working, I did most of the food shopping and cooking for the four of us, four children, and so for the six of us. And I loved it, and I still love it. It was just part of how I organized my day. I would go on the bus and take my brother to daycare because he's 10 years younger than me and then he was at the university daycare and I would walk him up and we'd sit in mum's office until she was finished and then we'd go home.
1: So you were the classic oldest child, oldest girl who absorbed so many family responsibilities really.
2: Yeah, everybody was doing things, but yes. yes,
1: yes. And you didn't think, you know, we need some laws against child slavery or (laughs) did that ever occur to you?
2: Look, in a sense, whether you call it a Protestant work ethic or in our case, a Jewish work ethic, moya... Everybody had to work and everybody had to contribute and it just felt part of being in a really vibrant, supportive family. A lot of academic and other family sort of friends of my parents and it was always a huge amount of debate and controversy being talked about in, in the household. So it, it, it was a really stimulating way to grow up. And then I went which, to sit. which
1: were your go-to issues in those family debates? I mean, where where did, there must have been some that came around and around. There always are between parents and children and within families. What were your go-to issues where you always, you know, you thought, yes, this is my moment. I'm I'm going to pick this one up again and batter my siblings or my parents.
2: <laughs> siblings, the, uh, look. It was a critical time happening from a feminist movement point of view. So there were a lot of discussions about that. We were also very... Did anyone
1: dare oppose... Like, I'm just imagining you and your mother on the same side of a debate. Did you and your mum ever lose one of those arguments around the (laughs) kitchen table? What was your record? How many wins, draws and losses? I, I,
2: I expect everyone would say that that house was like an echo chamber and that everybody thought the same.
1: Very good. Tell me a little bit about your school years, because you were educated completely in the public system, right? Yes,
2: I was. So I was at uh, the Wallara Opportunity Class, which was a fantastic education program. And I know across Sydney, those classes give a lot of opportunity to people. My mother had also been at the Willara Opportunity class and she was the uh, sort of first in her family to go all the way to tertiary education. Then I went to Sydney Girls High where she had also gone and that was a marvellous experience for me, introduced me to debating. I feel that our history teacher introduced me to structured inquiry, sort of inquisition and thought and writing and also I started to do debating and that was a fantastic path We debated across New South Wales. I was then selected for and captain of the New South Wales debating team and then of the Australian schools debating team. So it was just a brilliant development of how to think, how to think on your feet and how to work in a team, as you know, Moira, through multiple of your endeavours. And particularly in an impromptu debate, to be given a topic, a very short space of time, work out between the team, what are our key arguments and how to string them together and how to split them between the team members. It it was brilliant. Multiple lessons really that came from that process. So you debated for Australia? I did. I did. Did you get a cap? <laughs> no, what we didn't they? get a cap. But that selection, that competition and that selection occurred in Adelaide and Dame Roma Mitchell, so oh, Justice Roma yes, Mitchell. Oh yes,
1: another icon.
2: A turtle icon. She gave us the prize and she said to me, you should think about doing law. Was that where it started?
0: Was that the secret? Possibly of, the no, gym no gym.
2: member of my family had ever uh, studied law. So I have an image in my mind of that moment standing with her.
1: Well, I was an associate at the Supreme Court in South Australia after she had left that role. But I remember her coming into chambers once to see my judge and meeting Dame Romer, and she was a very formidable kind of character. I think if she'd told you to study something, you'd study it.
2: <laughs> That's probably <right. laughs> a chance, another
1: chance meeting. Yeah. There we go. So there are South Australian origins to your legal career. You don't know how happy that makes me as a South Australian. <laughs> it's,
2: a, it's another connection.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So did you play sport at school? I, I have to ask this question because there's so many people who will be disappointed if we don't talk about sport on the pod. We have never never done a pod where we didn't talk about sport. Uh,
2: yes, I rode. We had never had
1: uh, a... sit-down sport.
2: Okay. Uh, okay. Well, uh, Moya, it uses every muscle. So yeah. <laughs> I think you are not <laughs> appropriately giving credit. <laughs> so... Why did you decide? Like, it involves getting up early. Hugely early. We'd take three buses. Of course, the school had no boats, though now. Oh, you rode without a boat. (laughs) We had to borrow a boat from Sydney Boys High. Which we did, and that was a success. We had a coach from Sydney Uni Women's Rowing Club, but only on once on the weekend. So we would row each morning during the week, and each afternoon after school, we would go out on our own. And one, you go out
1: on your own,
2: go out on our own, unsupervised, no coach, unsupervised, underage, totally, uh, totally. of
1: care. <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> any bells ringing for anyone here?
2: <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally novice. Did you at least have life jackets or something? No. Or a flare? No. But we could swim. <laughs> yeah, that's not
1: the greatest idea in Sydney Harbour. It's no. a very way. The,
2: the first race we did, which was near Haberfield or there, we I think we rode into the boat next to us. After a term or more, we did a regatta and we stayed in a caravan at Taree, so on the river at Taree, and we came fourth in that race and nearly third. So we thought we had done pretty well. By that stage, one of the, I think the boys, he was either the boys school captain or the next year, he had decided we needed more training and he had started to train us. And he was training us well, actually. But the one part, which was an amusing story in part, one night or afternoon when we'd been training, we would come in before night fell. We went to the wrong side of a buoy. So a cox just misjudged it. And we went aground slightly. So we got a hole in the boat, infected the bow, so near where I was sitting. You put Um, a hole in Sydney Uni's boat. Sydney Boys High. Sydney Boys High's boat. Worst boat, boat, because of course they were probably Uh, quite sensibly giving us their worst boat. And when the boys went out rowing, the coaches went alongside them in motorboats. So one of the boys' coaches in a motorboat went by and we hailed him and said, we've got a problem. He said, just row, stopping by the side of the water, tip out the water, and keep going so we went across and the first place we stopped was at the king's school shed it took the king's first date now you can imagine the size of the king's first date to get that boat out of the river so (laughs) we could have four five of us four of the uh, of the women and the cocks we could have never got that boat out of the water But they got it out. They taped it up, actually, with elastoplast, which was a novel use for elastoplast. I remember that. And we got back into the water. It was nighttime by now. Our parents, nobody had a mobile phone. They were ringing the boys' club saying, where are the girls? (laughs) That did not prompt the boys, anyone, to come out and look for us, (laughs) mind you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh, we got back. But, Moira, I have to tell you, it was a great tactical move. It probably was our Cox's intention because after that we were lined the second worst boat in the boys' <laughs> <laughs> Because you'd kind of sunk the first one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so when we rode in Tari, we were in the second worst boat, not the worst boat. Now Sydney Girls and I have contributed to it as their own boats. Excellent, excellent. So uh, I have in memory of what was still an amazing experience it is incredible exercise very good for your core muscles incredible exercise but also beautiful to be on the river in the more early morning and, and at night time you see parts of sydney that you don't otherwise see so i do I have to have- take your word for that <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but there must have been an all persons alert out for you by the
1: time. If- Our parents were worried. I, I don't think. Any oh, no kidding! If- you went you went out in a boat unsupervised yeah. and weren't home by midnight. Yeah, well, this is nineteen seventy five. I, I don't think people were. People it- didn't worry in nineteen seventy
2: five. Children in that
1: Oh, way. the good old days! <laughs> but I, I'm just thinking. Your, I mean, your legal career might never have got started. <laughs> Multiple things might not have happened. Oh, well, parents, now we only have to worry about crazy drugs and too much social media. Now we only have to worry about TikTok. Back in the day, they had to worry about sinking (laughs) rowing boats and their daughters out on the Barramatta River past midnight in the dark.
2: In the dark. You're not supposed to be out in a boat after dark without lights. Are you? uh, No, no. And it was not quite midnight, but it would have been 9 p.m. So is this an unlawful act? (laughs) Quite possibly. (laughs) We were were not thinking about that at the time.
1: You you have a right against self-incrimination, Gina. (laughs) You you don't have to answer these questions. And anything you do say, well, we won't hold it against you. Okay, well, moving on, is practising law like an individual sport, like triathlon, or is it a team sport like synchronised swimming, or is it a kind of combination of both, like football? It's like football, Moya. I was hoping you'd say that.
2: yeah. dear to your heart. This could it- be a
1: very long interview now, you know that. <laughs>
2: Look, you can't, you won't deliver the best that you can deliver meeting the client's needs and you're doing the best you can professionally if each person doesn't contribute to their best and if you don't work incredibly well as a team, which starts at the very beginning, informing, giving everyone access to a higher level of information, keeping everybody informed, giving everybody time, if you've got the available time, giving everybody time to do their part and giving them a chance to then put their hands up and contribute to the strategy and to query what's being done. So it really needs to work as a very high performance team. Well, you are
1: somewhat famous around the firm for encouraging people to speak up even in client meetings and even the most junior people. Why do you do that? Because not all senior partners or senior people in those roles do invite the most junior members of the team to object to them or to, you know, to contradict them in front of a client or in front of an important audience?
2: So there's a number of reasons for it, Moya. The first is that the younger people on the team will be across the detail at a level that I am not because...
1: They're often very fact intensive aren't they these inquiries?
2: They are. Yeah. You certainly develop a capacity to you know what you want what you would expect to see, but it doesn't mean you're always going to see that. I always engage with the clients, hear the aspects, try to build up their appreciation of the situation, but the team will be looking and really in a sense themselves testing from data Documents and that process of building up a very robust understanding is critical. And if I have missed something, if there's something that contradicts, we will not be giving the right advice. So, first of it just is that for accuracy. And for the integrity of what we're doing, it's essential. I also want people to think. And if we are giving them the parameters always and just siloing their contribution, they're not a developing what their way of thinking more holistically. But in addition, they're actually not bringing all the capacity that the incredibly intelligent people we have are capable of delivering. So it's also part of drawing that out. Many also come here. I'm constantly inspired by the enthusiasm of the people who come in and they come with skills. They come with data analytical skills. They come with perspectives that we don't have and it refreshes, reinvigorates. So there's a whole set of reasons why I think it's really important. And I've received when this new appointment was announced a lot of marvellous emails, cards, and a, a number of them have said that one of the points that people have felt that I have consistently done that has mattered to them, and this actually came from a member of a team in, in a client, was that I listened to everybody and that I take time to listen. And I do that because I don't think I I know everything. I I think I need to learn from people, Mm. but I also want to everyone to give them respect and with a real understanding of equality and diversity, get different views. And so it, it was lovely. I was very moved by that. I mean, she talked about the way I had assisted them, but drawing from them to find some quite new and different solutions, but also that she always knew that I was a mother and that I shared that experience for her about how to combine these aspects in our lives. So it, it, it was very really moving.
1: Yeah. Mm. I mean, it, it is one of the textbook ways to go wrong, isn't it, just to have an answer fixed in your mind and then to kind of bluster your way through the inconvenient facts without regard to them. But but it's also, when I think about it, it's excellent training for younger members of the team in the courage you have to have to give legal advice sometimes, because quite often you're telling people something that they don't want to hear. And you know, we've all been in those moments where you sort of take a deep breath and you think, how am I going to say this in a way that won't get me thrown out of the room? People often come for advice wanting to be told that they're fine and it's all good and they and they're right everything they did was right and you'd like to be able to tell them that but often it's way more complex and you have to unpack the risks for them and it takes it takes courage doesn't it?
2: It does. And I consider one of the critical differences at that time. So, this is in 1995, I came to GT. And one of the key aspects we were seeking to do with clients was not to treat regulators as the opposition, to recognize the important public mandate and responsibility of regulators. And to guide clients to understand that so that we're advocating a position and outcomes, but conscious of and respectful of the important points the regulators needed to apply. And while I think that is very much so the approach in many cases At the time, it was quite differentiated and it was interesting to see for some clients that was difficult and in some cases didn't resonate. But for many, it did. And for many, they understood and so that it became, you're describing it well, a process for us, firstly, in discussion and in effect, working through what the objectives were and advising. And it may mean that what we were together putting would be a different formulated proposal transaction because it would involve change before it was even proposed. So it was much more complex, much more engaged. And ultimately, because it was testing what could be achieved, much more stimulating process than a purely adversarial process. Yes, mm-hmm. the parties had separate interests, but it pu- was not purely adversarial. It, it was recognising the capacity to reach a resolution.
1: And that illustrates that a purely adversarial approach often doesn't arrive at the optimal Outcome. In fact, I remember the first matter that I dealt with you on, it was something to do with a potential conflict and one of you have two teams and a Chinese wall. And I was on the other side, and I think we had to consent to this. And it wasn't very kindly looked upon on my side of the fence. And I had Gina ringing up. And, you know, she sort of explained what the two teams would do, what the safeguards were in place. We agreed to, you know, she, she let me know that she would ratchet up some of those safeguards if there was a level of discomfort. And by the end of about 10 minutes, I had nowhere to go. I, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to go back to my people and sell them this thing because I, I just haven't got anything. I've got no more reasons to object to this.
2: So, Roya, well, I do remember that conversation and then we embarked on the whole first job interconnection negotiation between Optus and Telstra and it was really a incredibly seminal set of experiences because that was at the cutting edge of regulatory change and commercial transacting in the context of regulatory change.
1: And uh, and it, it was very adversarial a lot of the time. It, it
2: was. And um, at that
1: point, it wasn't. It, it could easily be. I mean, what did they say? Did they say, oh, she's difficult, Gina. This is what you ring her. You ring her. I don't want to <laughs> ring her.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> she's not saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's not saying Uh, 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 um.
1: she's gonna say something kind now. I can tell. She's (laughs) just thinking of what what kind thing can I possibly say about her.
2: (laughs) I thought we had a really intelligent conversation.
1: We we did. We we had we had several over the course of that (laughs) over the course of that. And I have to say it left those interactions and the ones the many interactions I had with Peter Waters through those interconnect agreements left the lasting impression on me that this firm was not one where you went spoiling for a fight just because you enjoyed fights or fighting, but it was one where you'd always try to be a decent human being to the human being on the other side. And I think it was very, like just that little bit of extra generosity towards the people that you were dealing with meant that people were able to be more open about why they were taking the positions they were. And once you understand the why, then it's much easier to find a solution, you know, in that, in that Venn diagram that both parties can be happy with. It's easy to find optimal solutions if you don't start from, you know, barricaded positions in opposite corners.
2: I absolutely agree. And it it was a very exciting time here. I mean, uh, I was the 11th partner, first woman. Oh, first 11. She's in the first 11. (laughs) And uh, the partners would meet weekly around basically a dining table rather than a board table. And it just felt we were young, building something, The group that wasn't called the Competition and Regulation Group, probably, I'm sure, Peter Waters, this was Peter's name, so we were Digital Circus, so we were um, digital (laughs) pioneers in that sense. The name was Digital Circus, and it combined- I'm not
1: going to ask who was the clown and who was the lion, I'm not, I'm not.
2: (laughs) probably everybody played those roles at some point in time <laughs> but we were telecommunications competition commercial it was just everything together and and it was a sort of dot com time but also the, the the start of competition in telecommunications in Australia as as you it were really so closely was. involved and a time in canberra where there was a whole set of rethinking incredibly formative time.
1: Competition policy was such a fast moving beast during that era in many industries, but particularly in telecoms. Yeah, it was. And media, pay television, mobiles. I mean, I wanted to work in telecoms because I'd get a mobile phone and I thought that was just the ultimate accessory.
2: It was fascinating, the work at that time, and we needed to understand the technology, how everything was transmitted, cable, the new cables, all the devices. And, of course, then... The layers
1: of content you know the yep. oldest players the Hollywood studios coming in on the act and
2: yes so I had some fantastic experiences in that because I did a lot of work for Optus Vision including negotiating the contracts for content so I'll start with sport for you Moya. so Thank I you. negotiated with a whole set of sporting groups who had never been much covered before because the other sport much of it was on free-to-air or in or- or covered by anti-siphoning, for instance. So it it was a fascinating process. The negotiations with the Hollywood studios was a different level again. So I was given, I think, less than a day's notice to go to fly to LA. And at that stage, the parties who were loosely to come together in Optus Vision were 9, 7, Continental, Cable and Optus. And the key parties in that group who had studio relationships were nine and seven. Even so, we were in a difficult situation. Astralis had already got some pretty reasonable connections with some structuring that involved giving equity in part into what they were going to be offering. We participated in a whole series of meetings in which People were downright rude through to clearly just biding time, not really interested in it. I was always the only woman in the room.
1: I was going to ask you that. I mean, Hollywood was not known as a female-friendly space. How did you cope with that?
2: Uh, You would have had young kids at the time too, I think. Yeah, our son was two. I'd been working long hours, but always with him on the weekend. And he went to bed very late because he would always see me at nighttime when I got home from work. Um, So I'd never been away even a day from him. And I would try to speak to him on the phone. And he's just reached a point he didn't want. He would say, come home now. And of course I couldn't, mm. and he couldn't understand why not. So that was very hard. When I was working, I would sort of compartmentalize my mind on the weekend's I was quite depressed, really, because I wanted to go home. In one of the meetings in LA, there was a meeting for one day for five or six hours with no breaks, no drinks and no food, which was just a tactic. I just thought it was ridiculous and not respectful. So the next day, this guy was just clearly a Jewish guy. So I said to him, your Jewish mother would be appalled that you don't offer food. I said that at the beginning of the next day, because I, I thought it was pulling. And he said, well, we're not going to. And I said, okay, we will take a break in the middle of the day for an hour and then we'll return. So it just, the behavior was, I thought, unacceptable. And it was just, indeed, it was just a sort of power play in essence but just not a human interaction. Why interact with people like that? Ultimately, our breakthrough was that one of the people on the studio side was an Australian and he contacted me um, at the hotel I was living in and he said, I've got some ideas. And we then met a couple of times there in the bar. I thought you were
1: going to say barbecue. Yeah,
2: no. (laughs) (laughs) And put together a different structure. And then we got breakthroughs and we got MIUs and then we got agreements. But it was also a fascinating experience. Again, had to take account of regulatory, the interaction of free-to-air, Windows, pay TV, new entrant, and really the strength of the studios in the content that they were supplying globally. And just observing those interactions of strength expectation and coming as a totally new venture. That was a fantastic experience.
1: Incredible. You must have been the only woman in the room in many rooms. You've worked on some of the biggest transactions in Australian corporate history, and you've acted for and against the biggest players, often as the only woman in the room. What was that like?
2: So in part, I was always conscious of the importance to add value and to add value in a sense showing that I deserved to be in the room. So I was conscious of the difference. And initially that was my objective to show that I deserved to be there. So I never assumed I deserved to be there. That I had to prove it to the client and be heard. So they were not only, they were noisy rooms. And so so that I needed to show that they were right to have me in that room. So, so, so how did
1: you do that? How do you get heard in a noisy, large room full of men?
2: So firstly, the approach is you have to be prepared and you have to have thought through what are the key issues. Then frequently I wouldn't need to be the first to speak, but I would always make sure that it was really cutting to the core Sometimes it was easier because people made assumptions about points and just missed the main point. So because you come in thinking you have to prove that you deserve to be there, I think you've got a keener focus, actually. So I was once in a meeting with all men in a sporting situation where people were proceeding on the basis that that association continued to be an incorporated association, but actually they had incorporated, which made... Relatively recently, and the people there, including lawyers there, should have known that, but perhaps it had been done by another firm, so they weren't conscious, but it changed the way we should be thinking about how to structure and what we could do. And I was in this sort of below ground meeting room, it was like a bunker, together with- Sounds um,
1: like FIFA. (laughs) It wasn't FIFA, just to be clear.
2: It wasn't FIFA. (laughs) With a marvellous senior counsel who we had retained- And I turned to him and said, this discussion, which we'd been listening to for about half an hour is just proceeding on the wrong legal and factual basis. I think I need to say it. So I'd not met these people before. And he said, just stand up, Gina, and say it. And I did. So sometimes there are aspects that are just missed entirely. When I could bring people with me was to bring as many women as possible with me. So I was not the only woman in the room. Is corporate behaviour changing, do you think? I do. I do think Mm. it's changing. Mm. There's a greater consciousness of
1: what power imbalance looks like and the impact that it has on people to produce good work and essentially have a workplace in which they can produce their best work.
2: Ah, Correct. That's exactly right. There is still need all the time to work hard on making these interactions be respectful, inclusive, equal, draw on people to the best of their ability. To be aware of that and to take account of it uh, needs real empathy and understanding and changing the way you work. So it's a continued objective and combined project, really.
1: And You grew up in a household where there was a great sense of equality and, yes. and yes. differentials. Yes,
2: and, and, and that everybody needed to basically pitch in a, and do things together. It was part of how I grew up. And when you
1: mix in corporate Australia, you sometimes find yourself working with people who are at the top of, you know, on the upside of very steep differences in power, in wealth, in income, in influence.
2: You do. And And you've dealt
1: with the biggest of them.
2: (laughs) Yes. And uh, I've been given great opportunities in that process, Um, a a lot of respect. Uh, I have also seen in many uh, areas... A real preparedness to engage with the key regulatory and public policy imperatives as well, that clients at all levels and at senior levels have a strong understanding of the combination of corporate responsibility, but also of responsibility to community too.
1: And I think there's a greater understanding that equality is good for everyone, not just for the most disadvantaged.
2: Absolutely. So very early, when I I remember sitting in the office in Carrington Street, soon after I joined G and T, and I had learnt already that there are some key times when I needed to be in a working day at my kid's school, including volunteering to be in the tuck shop. I didn't want clients to be surprised when I wasn't available. So I would call them at least a week in advance and say, I'm going to be on tuck shop on that day next week. If we need to get something done, let's get it done the week before, uh, the night before, by the end of the night before. And I always got a wonderful reaction to it, including from men and senior men. And they would firstly be totally understanding and also say they had wished, many would say they had wished, that they had that opportunity or that they had taken up such opportunities. So it just started a conversation that initially I was worried what are people going to think because there were not that many women at that stage either in the firms or as partners in firms. Um, But I always got a wonderful reaction. So it's a seemingly small example but it's an example very much of what you're saying, that there is a connection on these questions across parents.
1: And I think the next generation of lawyers, we're seeing parents of yes. all, genders all genders taking yes. responsibility for housework and childcare. Let's have some fun. I've got some quick fire questions for you. Great. Cats or dogs?
2: Cats. My my cat has participated in Zooms. I think I've seen your cat on Zoom. I'm really allergic to cats. (laughs) I almost
1: sneezed when I saw your cat. Uh,
2: I'm sorry for you, Maya. (laughs) Train or car? So I love trains. I most often now use car, but I love trains. And there was a period of time when I was at uni, come off my high school debating, where I was an adjudicator for the state public schools, whole set of debating competition. I traveled all over Sydney on the train, western down, southwestern down to Wollongong, and it was a marvellous, marvellous experience meeting kids across all those schools and talking to them about how to analyse issues, frame arguments, express themselves better. It was a wonderful, did it for a number of years.
1: You, go, you can go a long way in public transport.
2: <laughs> <laughs> tea or coffee? So depends on the time of day. For the first quick shot, it's coffee. And then I love green tea. Okay. Jeans or suit? For many years, suit, but I'm now more often in jeans and more casual pants. We've noticed,
1: and we think that's an excellent um, (laughs) development uh, and one of the very few things we have to thank the pandemic for. Sparrow or owl?
2: Both, because I have to start early. Insomniac. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Red or blue? Red. That's easy. Who's your football team?
2: Liverpool. (laughs) Ah. So, uh, and. No wonder you're up early. And (laughs) once I have had the pleasure, though you will have done more often, I think, Moya. I've been to a game at Anfield. They were playing at Aston Villa. Liverpool won. And... It's true,
1: is it not, that there's a tradition of Thursday, Jersey.
2: Yes. Led by you.
1: It's always good to rename a day of the week, you know, <laughs> like the no Undy Sunday and the, the Thursday, Jersey. <laughs> and you were a bit of a fashion plate when it came to jerseys, were you not? Uh,
2: I was because our son had just adored. So he, he had multiple Liverpool jerseys, but he had a jersey from Harry Cure when he was at Leeds.
1: Well, I remember seeing you in the office in a a Harry Kuehl jersey and you had an all-day Zoom conference with the ACCC. I did. It was a
2: 155 examination.
1: Was that the moment when you thought, look, if I can go to an all-day conference with this outfit wearing my Harry Kuehl jersey, then I, I, I could work there, you know? Is, <laughs> is that when the light went on and you thought, I, I could see myself working at the ACCC? It, it, it confirmed it, I think. Or maybe they looked at you and they thought, <laughs> well, you know, if this woman can sit there in a football jersey on an all-day 155, she's our she's out." woman.
2: Uh, She's uh, our next chair. uh, uh, I expect there are many points of connection and it's a good (laughs) representation of
1: it. Walk or jog? Walk. Bike or swim? Swim.
2: Yeah, I learned to swim in the Bondi baths. It's freezing, absolutely freezing. Come back and sit in uh, a bath to warm up, but I love swimming. You
1: did some strange things as a child (laughs) involving water. Sun or shade? Sun. Beach or mountains? Beach. Uh, Text or call?
2: So this depends. I think text is very efficient, doesn't disturb the other person. They see it, they can take in the information. But if there is anything needs to be more nuanced, particularly difficult communication, I want to have a conversation. So I explain and hear what people have to say.
1: People often do it the other way around though, isn't it? It's so easy just to go, oh, this is a tricky one. I'll just bang out a text.
2: Yeah, I don't think that's communicating in the real sense of communicating.
1: So it would be true to say that you have never broken up with anyone via text.
2: <laughs> that is correct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Gina, you've given us a lot of your time and we're very grateful for that.
2: But as they say in the classics, I suppose it's come to this. The end of a just wonderful time. I have always felt the day I came to GNT was a liberation for me, and every day has felt to be liberating.
1: Well, you have taught us so much and led the premier competition group in Australia and shaped it really in your own image in many ways. I mean, it's a group that is very gender balanced. It's a group where I hope everyone feels they have had the opportunities they deserve plus a bit. And uh, it's a group where there's generosity towards your co-workers and where everybody wants each other to succeed. And that's really, for me, the definition of a team. So thank you for helping to create the incredible team that we have. And I'm sure you'll create more.
2: Thank you, Moya. And it has been just a privilege and a revelation always. And the only thing I would say is rather than my image in our images collectively. So I think there've been many huge contributors to it.
1: And is it too late to negotiate a transfer fee?
2: (laughs) (laughs) not quite sure what the treasurer would think of that.
1: Gina Kaskoply, thank you so much for being with us and all
0: the best.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Moya.
0: Oh, what a great interview. She really is an icon and it's been a privilege to know her during this time. And you know, looking into the crystal ball, I'm predicting that Gina will be an amazing chair of the UAC, And I'm not just saying that because she'll be ultimately responsible for just about every decision affecting us and our clients from now on.
1: Well, I know. I, I know you're hoping for that barbecue invite, Matt. We never did get one from Rod Sims, did we? Despite practically begging for one in every episode last
0: year. Do you think our chances are improving a little? Uh, Look, I just want to get that fake and double veggie burger before the Senate fake meat inquiry gets its way. But that's another thing that happened while we were off the air. All right.
1: Well, remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes, and we're getting some great guests coming in in season two, including Louise Klamka on the ups and downs of air travel in the COVID era, and Jeff Peterson on the big existential questions about how to decarbonise energy markets.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends, unless your friends happen to be implementing any measures of a military technical nature against any independent nations. Yeah, leave those
1: friends out of it. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with the Gilbert and Tobin
0: point getters. Go point getters.
1: Wait, that sounds like basketball. That's a different market.